The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Morning, church. How's everybody doing today? Oh, dude, I love that. I'm not going to lie to you. 8.30 service, a little bit of a snoozer today. I'm digging your energy right now. Thank you, guys. Um, Hey, do me a favor. Grab your Bibles. Turn, that's never going to convince you guys to go to the early service when I keep saying that, right? Unless you want a nap, I guess. Um, hey, grab your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1. Uh, while you're doing there, lend me an ear. i got some announcements for you guys. Uh, first of all, tonight is the ladies' Christmas celebration. It is at 6 o'clock. Uh, and uh, you, uh, ladies, you and your uh, daughters are welcome to join us. There's no child care, but they're welcome to be part of it. Uh, men, you stay home with the guys. I'm told that Dallas is playing on TV, but I'm sure there's like a, a movie or something. I know Nemo's out now. You can watch that. Something. But um, encourage you guys to uh, cut your ladies loose tonight so that they can gather together. They'll be benefiting the uh, Pregnancy Center and the OnTrack families here in the Valley in that. So make sure you do that. Also, big, big thank you to all of you guys, your generosity and your giving. This year in our Christmas project, because of your generosity... We were able to cover 120 children through the OnTrack program with gifts through 345 stockings and gifts given throughout the valley. So give yourselves, if you will, and the Lord a round of applause. Thank you guys so much for doing that. And um, to Jessica Winnie and her dream team, that's what it says on my announcement sheet. Thank you guys so much for what you guys did and the hard work in uh, making this possible. You made Heritage look good and you made the Lord look really, really good. So thank you so much for that. Um, Also, today is Pastor's Coffee after service today. If you are new or new-ish or whatever to the church um, and you'd like an opportunity, man, we would love to meet with you in the coffee shop right after service. Opportunity to tell you a little bit about ourselves, the pastoral staff, an opportunity to shake hands and meet you guys um, and things like that. We do this once a month and so we would love to have you join us in the coffee shop right after service today. And then also, um, you guys know we give books away here. And uh, last week and a couple weeks before that, we gave away Crazy Crazy Busy by Kevin DeYoung. Now, first of all, when we give books away, there's two rules. Rule number one is? Rule number two is? Pass it along. Someone done read this or, or didn't like it and brought it back, but it was already up on the thing. So I got one of those. Um, but then this week, um, I've been talking a lot the last few weeks about the, uh, the idea of parenting our children through the gospel and not through just behavior modification and those things. And this is a, just a tremendous resource, um, for help. It's hard for us sometimes to figure that out because all we know is like when they're bad, punish, when they're good, reward. And that's all we really know to do. But this book has some great, great ideas along that. It's called Give Them Grace, Dazzling Your Kids with the Love of Jesus by Elise Fitzpatrick. Um, Some years ago when we weren't quite this big, we bought copies for everyone who had uh, kids in the children's wing. So a lot of you guys have this already. If you don't, this would be a great resource for you. Now, some people always say, why do you put all the books at the front? The people in the back can't ever get there. And uh, yeah, that's kind of it. Yeah. So, um, but today I'm throwing the people in the back of bone. There's one sitting on the sound booth back there, but don't get spoiled. It won't happen again. And so there's the other one right there. And then finally, I got one extra announcement. Now listen, you cannot go flood the connect desk with this. They have nothing for you. Please understand Say it with me. They have nothing for me. Okay, but for those of you that have been wanting some information, I know the final details of this have taken a little longer to put together than we had anticipated. Um, The Apostle Paul trip coming up in September um, is going to be, uh, the actual dates are, get your pins out if you're planning, because some of you wanted to get, get, uh, you know, time off work laid out and all that stuff. 
September 23rd through the 26th. I would go ahead and block out the 27th too if you've never done jet lag before. It's awesome. So, uh, but anyway, that's going to be the exact dates. And this year we were able to keep the total cost per person on this under $5,000 a person, which still sounds like a lot of money until you start realizing it's flights to Europe. You're on a boat some of the time. You're on a cruise ship part of the time. And then you have flights within Europe that you have to take as well. So it's pretty significant travel. And a lot of the Apostle Paul tours that go on out there are sort of, there's like a base model that also doesn't go to a couple of different places just because of ease of getting around. But we're not wimps, amen? So we're doing the whole deal. This is a 14-day tour that goes to all the sites that are possible out there. So it's going to be a significant trip and an amazing trip. And I'm really looking forward to hanging out in Europe with you guys. So we'll be going to Turkey, Greece, all of those sorts of things. There's a hand up. What did I say? 23rd? Oh, yeah, that'd be a short trip, right? 23rd to the 26th. We're here. Let's go home. Let's go. Like, that would be lame. All right, September 13th through the 26th. I would count 27th because you're going to be tired when you get back. So uh, anyway, the brochures I'm told are being printed and the company's supposed to be sending them to us, hopefully even overnighting them. So I'm hoping to have them next week. But again, the Connect Desk, what do they have for you? They have nothing for you, okay? This is just for your own planning's sake. So do me a favor, if you would. Now we are going to be in the book of Colossians chapter 1. And in honor of God's word, um, if you would stand with me. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand up, wave it around. We will make sure that you get one. And we're going to read this morning's text. We're going to be reading Colossians 1 verses 15 through 20. And it says this. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to come together, the redeemed body of Christ, to open up your word and to hear from our maker. Lord, it's an honor to have your word. What a gift you've given us. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us in spite of me, through me. I pray, God, that your word would come alive in our hearts and minds, that you would awaken long-dead affections, that, Lord, we would leave this place more like you than when we came and more in love with you than when we came. And, God, for all that to happen, your spirit has to move. So, Lord, as we sing, your spirit is welcome here. Lord, may you flow through this place. May you speak and awaken our soul. And may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my rock, my king, and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen. amen. You can have a seat. 
continuing on in our study of the book of Colossians. As you guys know, we've been working through this kind of at a snail's pace here lately, but it's that kind of book. It's that kind of rich. There's that much to read. Oh, there's a whole other book, Saving to Save by Brian Lurtz. That one got read. Look at that. It's got like curls and stuff in it. Someone read that book. So there's another one right here. I love that you guys are doing this. That's great. So um, anyway, we're in the book of Colossians, and we're, we're in a section, we're in a part of the text right now that's a little bit different than all the other stuff that's there. Like, as Paul's writing this letter to this church, he, he's doing his typical greeting. It's, it's an actual letter, remember, written to actual people. And, and letters are intended to kind of convey information, ask questions. It's, it's almost like a discussion. But this text, specifically what we just read, verses 15 through 20, is a little bit different. Um, when you study the original language, um, you can see that there are rhythms to this text. There is a balance to it. There's, there's a, a tone to it that leads us to believe that, that this is a song. It's, it's a poem. It's a hymn, you might say, inserted into the letter. Now, we talked about this last week. Why would they do that? N.T. Wright, a famous theologian today, says, Someone who writes this way wants his readers to stop and take notice. And the idea is this. If you got a letter from your loved one, your, your boyfriend, your husband, whatever the case may be, the letter's going on, how are you doing? I miss you. There's all this information. Then when they're like, I miss you because, and they like bust out in some Justin Bieber lyrics or something like that. And you're just like, oh, and you swoon. You know what I mean? Like, that's the idea. Like, as you're reading along, the tone changes. This poem's there. And poems, hymns, songs, they're meant to invoke emotion. It's more than just the, the base exchange of information. A, a hymn or a song is, is meant to inspire it's meant to do something in here more than in here. And so as Paul's writing, he takes this hymn, this song, this, these lyrics, and he inserts them into his letter. Why? Because he's trying to get them to pay attention. He wants them to just stop and lean in and understand what's going on. But, but not just know it up here. He wants them to know it like right here. Why? Well, this church built on the gospel of Jesus Christ is kind of under attack. There's some different philosophies that are out there that are trying to in, infiltrate the church and change the belief system. There's beliefs out there from paganistic religions like the Gnostics and such all the way to Judaism and its beliefs. And they're trying to come into the church and say, you guys have Jesus and that's awesome that you have Jesus. But you know what? You also need to this, 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 this. In the case of the Gnostics, they're saying, God is spirit. Only the spiritual things matter. The world around us is so fallen. So yeah, you got Jesus and that's great, but you need to starve yourself. You need to, you need to reject anything that brings pleasure or joy or that has any dependence on the material world at all. And you need to be all about these spiritual things and then God will know you're really serious. Then God will be happy with you. And then on the other end of that, you've got the Judaizers that are coming in and they're saying, you have Jesus, that's fantastic. But don't forget, it's a Jewish foundation. I mean, that whole Old Testament that you're reading, that's, that is Judaism. And so, yes, you got Jesus. That's great. But don't forget, you need to be circumcised. You need to go to this ceremony. You need to honor this. And you need to, and all of these different legalistic religious practices that were pushed upon the Jewish people. They're saying, Jesus is great, but you need this too. And that's how you stay in God's favor. That's how you really find salvation. And so what Paul's doing here is he's writing in such a way that he's trying to exalt and lift up Jesus Christ to a completely different degree so that when those temptations come, 
Jesus is so much more attractive, so much more beautiful, so much more valuable that these other things don't have a pull on them anymore. And that's the best way to fight temptation, right? Is to have something different. Like, oh, I want that. I'm tempted by that. Ooh, that's even better. Let's go get that thing over there. And that's really what Paul's doing. He's trying to deflect. He's trying to make them immune to these pulls that are taking them in different places, not by even necessarily preaching all bad about those things, but by exalting and lifting up the person and name of Jesus Christ, showing them how powerful he is, that he is Lord of lords, King of kings, that he's creator, that he's master, that he's father, that he's king, that he's redeemer, that he's savior, that he, as we see today, holds all things together. And so that way, if some pagan religion is over here like, yeah, but you also need this religion here, they would, why, why would I need some pagan God? I have the Lord of lords. And then you got the religious guys over here. Yeah, you have Jesus, but you need to do this and this and this and this. And you go, well, why, why would I need to fall back into that mindset when Jesus said it is finished and he has done this work already in me? Why am I killing myself trying to earn favor that the gospel tells me he's already dumped on me? And so this is the point, to elevate Jesus Christ. And so last week, we did verses 15 through 16, he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven, earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and by him. So we talked about his lordship, that Jesus is supreme over all things. Whether we choose to recognize it or not, God is king. And one day Jesus will return. And whether we want to recognize it or not, every knee will bow before Jesus. Amen? And then we talked also about what this means, that Jesus is the image of the invisible God. And I hope I didn't bore you guys to death with the insane long rabbit trail that we took going through really the entire Bible to talk about this idea of what it means to be the image of God. But if you really think about it, it's a fascinating study. This idea that in Jesus Christ, we have the ability to understand all that we need to know about God. And, and that's easy to forget. Because for a lot of us, like I almost grew up with this understanding, like God was the grumpy old man, but then Jesus came in the New Testament, he's way more chill, thank goodness. So now we can follow him and forget worrying about the dude that just squashes people all the time. And that's what a lot of people's mentality is. But the Bible tells us that, that he is the image of the invisible God. In other words, all the nature, all the characteristics, everything that God is, Jesus is God, but also manifests to us who God is, including who is God the Father. We see it in Jesus. So if we want to know what Jesus thinks about religion, we look at how Jesus dealt with religion. If we want to know what Jesus thinks about uh, family, if we want to know what Jesus thinks about really anything. How did Jesus interact with unbelievers? How did Jesus treat sinners? How did Jesus treat um, immorality and all these different things? In that, we learn what the nature of God is because Jesus was the perfect image, the manifestation of the character of God as he walked through earth. It's a beautiful thing. But then we took it another step, if you guys remember, because we were created to be in the image of God. Like that was our design. And yes, we fell. We looked at that last week in Genesis, and we see where we fell, and the image of God, the Imago Dei in us, has been tarnished, and yet Jesus comes. He lives that out perfectly, dies for our sin, resurrects from the dead, and now, for those who believe, the Spirit of God is placed inside us. And what's the role of the Holy Spirit? To change us from glory to glory. In other words, little by little, day by day, we are being changed into the image of God, the way that we were always designed to be. 
And so we live out the attributes of God. We spent a lot of time digging on that last week. If you, if you missed out on the sermon last week, I do encourage you to go get that, but have your Bibles ready and be ready to go quick because we went all over the place. But I hope what you guys saw was the beauty of this design and the understanding that this book's not just a collection of standalone books. You know that, right? I mean, sometimes we think of it. I'm going to read Genesis today and I'll read Samuel tomorrow and they're all just kind of their own stories, but... The Bible's not some collection of tales like the life work of Charles Dickens, where this book has really nothing to do with this book. They're all great, but that's not the reality. This is a continuing story of the redemptive work of God in the history of mankind and beyond. There's life and connection and theme that flows through it seamlessly. And we saw a little bit of that last week. My intro just went way longer than I intended. I'm already running around on time, so let's move on then. So this week we go into... Verse 17, which says, And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, here's this phrase again, if you remember last week. He's before all things. So there are those that take that in conjunction with what we saw last week when it said that, that he's the firstborn of all creation. And so people will say, see, Jesus was created. He's just the first creation. So he's preeminent. He's first but he's created, and that, that's not what's happening here. As you guys know, last week we looked at that, and it's not that Jesus is the firstborn creation, but that Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. It was a, a phrase intended to promote the preeminence of Christ and his position over all of creation. It's, it's tied to um, ancient practices where the firstborn in a family had ownership rights, if you will, inherited everything from the Father. It was a place of preeminence. So when they're calling Jesus the firstborn, they don't mean that literally he was born first and we came second. They mean he's the first, that he's preeminent over all things. But in this text, when it says before all things, it's talking a couple of different things. The sense here is one of chronology, but also position. So chronologically, he is before all things. We have this text we looked at last week. John 8, 5, 8 says this. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, before Abraham was, what? I am. That, that's a statement of the pre-existence of God before all creation. It's the, it's the words that Moses used when he went to the people of Israel. He said to God, when I go to them to deliver them, they're going to ask me which God sent me to do this. And there's gods, I mean, just Egypt was littered with, there's God's little G everywhere. So what am I going to tell them? He said, you tell them, I am. It's a statement of preeminence. It's, I am the God of. Egypt had gods of water, gods of farming, gods of taffy, gods of video games, gods of, I mean, just everything had gods everywhere, right? And he's like, no, 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 no. I am. I am that I am. I am God, period. There is no other name. There is no other God other than me. And then when Jesus uses it here in the book of John, he's also reaching back before he was ever born. I am. I've been. Before Abraham was, I am. So there, there's a chronology to this as well as a preeminence that I'm the firstborn. Before everything, Christ comes first. Now these two things are working in conjunction for us to understand what Paul's saying here. He's before all things. He's always been. And he's first. Now, through the text, we've been looking mostly at like what Christ has done. But this text sort of pivots a little bit because it shifts and says, he's before all things, that's previous. Then he says, and in him, all things hold together. That's present. So we've talked about this 
this previous work of Christ, that he's the creator who spoke all things into existence. He's even previous to this text. He's the one who was manifest in the flesh, lived this perfect life, went to the cross, was buried, rose again. This is who Christ is. But now it says there's this continuing work of Christ that goes on. And the thing that's presented before us is he holds all things together. Now, the emphasis of this book, you've got to understand, Christ is first. Say it with me. Christ is first. A little bit louder because it's 1030. Christ is first. So that's the overall theme of everything that's going on here. Christ is first. Now, keep that in mind. Just set it right here where you can reach it for just a second and think about this. And now he's saying he holds all things together. Now, there's a galactic sense of that that is unbelievable. It's hard even to wrestle with. Even with our, either our limited mind or scientific understanding of how things work right now, there's this understanding and belief that he holds all things together. The word hold there is cohere. Everything is held together by Jesus Christ. A, a theologian said this, the universe owes its continuing coherence to Jesus Christ. This is what this means. The fact that all these planets spin around the sun and don't smash into each other and we continue to exist year after year, century after century, is not ultimately because of gravitational pull. It's ultimately because of Jesus Christ. Now, don't go weird on me. This is a dark age dude, doesn't even believe in science, probably doesn't believe in math. You're just holding on to these old myths. No, 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 I'm not, I'm not saying those forces don't exist. I'm not saying that stuff isn't what's being used, but I'm saying there's something behind them. I'm saying that those forces don't just come out of thin air. That Jesus Christ, understand the statement here. Again, Paul is intending to elevate him and to help us understand the majesty and the power and the grandeur. And he says, he holds everything together. The God who spoke everything to existence, there is a continuation of this idea that everything that exists owes its gratitude and praise to God that it continues to exist. I mean, you could try wrapping your head around that. You could go down some just crazy, just there's all sorts of things. That's a huge concept. It's just an absolutely massive concept. The thing that holds everything together is not a force or a theory, but a person. But then there's a, there's a whole different way to look at it, to kind of bring it back home in another way. Hey, church, if you have your faith in Jesus, whoever you are in this room, you got to know this. Jesus is first. And he holds all things together. That doesn't just mean the world. That means your world. What are you dealing with? What's going on? What makes you feel like things in your world are off kilter? Perhaps it's that the thing that is intended to be preeminent, the thing that is intended to be center, the thing in which all things revolve around, the thing that holds all things together, maybe we've made a substitution there. I'll give you an example. For some people, what holds their world together? What makes sure things are safe and okay and that they can get through anything? For some people, maybe it's money. I mean, in our culture, consumeristic and capitalistic society, it's really easy to start thinking that. If we just had more money, everything would be okay, right? Man, all these problems, man, all these bills, and now it's the holidays and I gotta buy gifts. I don't even like half of these people. What am I gonna do with all this stuff? If I just had more money, this would actually be a peaceful holiday instead of a stressful one. 
Everyone in this room's thought that at some point. Man, if I just had this, then I could get away for a little while. I could just afford to take a break. If I, and, and, but here's what ends up happening. When you look to something like, for example, money to be the thing that holds your entire world together, you instantly set yourself off kilter with the way the world's designed to work. And it won't be long before you're going to find yourself spinning out. Because you've put the emphasis or the pressure or the ownness of holding your world together on something that was not designed to hold your world together. In fact, it itself is designed to revolve around the person of Jesus Christ. And so something like money can be something that, that in Christ and through Christ, understanding that even our finances revolve around who Christ is, can do incredible things like take care of all these families in the valley who don't have gifts for their kids. But apart from Christ... Money can be used to do horrible things or at the very least to lead people down a path where they start to realize that they've devoted their whole life to chasing something that will never hold their life together, that will never provide the security that they want, or that right when they think they have it, something like cancer comes up and you find out you can't buy your way out of that. And for some people, it's relationships, marriage. This is the person that's gonna hold my whole life together. Man, that's a terrible idea to put on your spouse. And my wife is a great wife. She's a terrible savior. She's not here this week, so I can say that. She's a, it's just true. And I'm worse. And so if someone was to put on me or on you or on any of us, this will be the answer to everything and they will hold my whole world together. I got bad news for you. They don't even hold their own world together. And so you can put all this pressure on someone to be the thing that keeps it all together. And then even if they're amazing, they're one car wreck away from abandoning you, so to speak, forever. What do you do then? You spin out. Because your whole world was built to revolve around something that was never designed to carry the weight and expectation that you have on it. Sex, we don't even need to get started on that one. Look at our culture. There's so many things that we go, this will save me. This is what I need. This is what's going to make me happy. This is what it's going to be. But Christian, Christ is first. He's got to be the center. Not, not because he's a glory hog. That's just how things are designed. And because he's the only thing that can stand up to the incredible burden of hope and expectation that we put on it. Everything else will fail. Christ has to be center. And Christ is the one that holds your world together. He holds all things together. Sometimes I think we feel like stuff's just falling apart in our life, and it's because we got off center. We put something else in that place. We put expectations on something else, and we forgot. No, 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 no. Christ is first, and he holds all things together. Not my spouse, not my job, not my favorite sports team, none of those things. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness, to quote our own hymn. Amen? Amen. He holds all things together. And so trying to rule things ourselves, trying to find other things to fill in, trying to segment our life and be like, Jesus is center in these areas of my life, but I need to be center in these areas of my life, or even involving things in our life that we can't make Jesus part of because we know he's not going to have any part of that. And those are things that just spin you out. Christ is first. He is first. Whether you're choosing to make him that way or not, Christ is first, and he holds all things together. And then look what he says in verse 18. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. 
head of the body of the church. Now this is same language Paul uses in Corinthians and other places. Um, it's a picture that, that's really pushed on us as more than just a picture. And the idea is this. When you got saved, you did not make simply an individual choice to follow Jesus. It is not personal salvation in the way that we independent Americans like to think of it. You were saved into a collective that's called the church. Nowhere in scripture is there any uh, uh, description of anyone who gets saved into nothing. Independent, just me and God. That's not in the Bible anywhere. We are adopted into the family of God and the picture that's used is that of the body. And it's a really cool one if you think about it. it, it it's a diverse organism. There's, there's hands and feet and knees and elbows and that weird skin on our elbows and all those different kinds of things. But all of them come together to serve a purpose. I mean, the weird skin on your elbow, you think, well, what is that? Well, that's protecting even that sharp bone on your elbow. I mean, there's like all sorts of causes and everything in the body exists apart from cancer. Everything in the body exists to support something else. The kidneys filtering, the lungs pumping air, blood carrying the air to different parts of the body, whatever the case may be. And all of these things are under the head, the brain, the thing that kind of keeps all those things going. Some of us may be a little sharper than others, but that's the idea. And so this picture is that in the church, you have the body of Christ that's come together with diversity, different gifts, different functions, different um, backgrounds, all these different things that all come together and exist to serve and support one another, love one another, and to manifest the body, or in other words, to help the world see what Jesus looks like under the headship of Jesus. And Jesus, in his infinite wisdom, has chosen to do this specifically through the organism that is called the church. And that's where we run into some problems sometimes nowadays because we like that idea of I'll be, I'll be under Jesus, Jesus is my head, I'll worship Jesus, but there's a whole lot of people that they want to be Jesus people and have nothing to do with the church whatsoever. Um, and often cases, it's because they've been banged up by the church a little bit. I mean, be honest. How many of you have been banged up by the church before? How many of you have been banged up by this church? How many of you are getting banged up right now by this church? As a matter of fact, I mean, maybe, right? We have. And so there's a lot of people that have had these bad church experiences. We touch on this once in a while. It seems to come up, especially in Colossians. So you have these experiences, and so you go, no, no, no. I'm, I'm not going to have anything to do with the body of Christ. I'm just going to be under the headship of Christ. And it doesn't work like that. And right now in our culture, especially, there's bloggers and writers and all these guys. Again, I say this all the time. Just because a book is in the Christian bookstore does not mean you should be reading that book. And there are a whole lot of people who are now under the guise of Christianity and have nothing to do with the church, which is one of the main vessels of sanctification and change in your life. So I don't even know how you can fully become what God has designed you to do if you're not going to be a part of the body of Christ. You can't. And so there's a lot of people that that's kind of their mentality. I'm just going to be separate from the church. And the church, they're all a bunch of hypocrites anyway. Yes, they are. Here's a room full of them. Welcome home. You'll fit right in. Because surely you're not saying you're not. I mean, honest. Surely you're not saying you're nailing it and no one else in here is. No one could really believe that, right? But that's kind of what happens a lot of times. And so, well, I don't want anything to do with the church. It's just going to be about me and Jesus. But think about this maybe for a second. Maybe this is something new. Think about this. 
what does it say about God that he continues over and over in incredible patience and love to love on and work through this group of people that mess things up so often? What does it say about the unconditional love of our God that he hasn't just thrown all of us into the sun and started over? Isn't that kind of unconditional love, isn't that what we crave? Isn't that what we're designed to long for? Don't you want to be part of a group of people who it doesn't, your mistakes will not alienate you from the love of God? I mean, surely you don't want to set yourself up in such a way that you're like, because of their mistakes, I'll be separate. Because if that's what you're saying, then you better nail it. Or you're not going to have any assurances even of yourself in your connection with God. And yet we see how God has constantly worked. I mean, from the very first ones. I mean, these guys, are you kidding me? All they did was fight about who was first. I'm greater than you. I want to be first. I want to do this. I want to sit there. And then when they found opposition, dude, seriously, let's just call down flames on them and burn those fools. Like that was the people that Jesus started the church with. What does it say about the goodness and grace of God? And and be honest with yourself. Like we need that grace, right? Just one, just you and me, John. We're in good company. We're in good company. That's the kind of God that we serve. And, And here's just the reality. Listen. If any church is actually being the church, and I'm just telling you, there's some that aren't. But if any church is actually being the church, it is guaranteed to be messy and difficult. Guaranteed. Because first of all, if you're bringing new life into the church, just think back to the last time, if those of you, if you can remember that long, some of you, but remember when you had babies? Now, be honest with it though because we tend to when we think about those of us that have been blessed to be able to have children we tend to um, think about the birth of our children through a little bit of a rose-colored glass idealistic we're like oh it was beautiful it was so oh my wife never looked so beautiful she just had this glow hair was flowing makeup was perfect doctors were singing flower petals are falling from the sky and this beautiful little thing came out and said I love you daddy and it's just like this we have this like idealistic picture right no, there was screaming in the room, right? I got called names. I was yelled at. There was blood and all sorts of other things. Like it was just, ugh. It was bad. An army of mops. I mean, it was just terrible, right? Because whenever there's new life, there's blood. Whenever there's new life, it's messy. Right now, just this Friday, um, as you guys know, I think, most of you anyway, um, we just adopted this little boy. And he's five years old, got matched with him through foster care, didn't know him at all, don't know his family, don't know his story, don't know anything about him. And this Friday, the adoption was actually finalized in court. So it's all over. We don't have people looking over our shoulder anymore. That's awesome. Um, thank you. That's, thank you, I think. But, but let's, I'm going to be honest with you guys a little bit, all right? It's messy. I mean, it's hardest thing I've ever done in my life without question. Like I drove to court Friday morning riddled with anxiety going, what are we doing? Is this really what we need to be doing? Because I just had the worst week I've ever had with him. Because here's this little boy. I don't know his history. I don't know what's happened to him. I don't know all those details. I got reports, but that doesn't tell everything. It doesn't, and the paperwork doesn't describe in full who he is and what's going on inside him. 
And we step on landmines in this kid's life all the time. Things blow up on us all the time. There's things that trigger all the time and we don't even know. Be fits that come up and I don't even know what's going on. I don't know how to stop it. I find myself wrestling between frustration and anger and fear and sadness and all this stuff and it is messy. And that's what's going on right now in this room, people. Because even more than regular, like natural, your own childbirth, adoption is the picture the Bible really pushes on to say this is what it's like to be born again into the family of God. And so inside this room is a whole bunch of people with a whole bunch of history and a whole bunch of baggage and a whole bunch of triggers and a whole bunch of issues. And we've all come together, adopted into this new family, and we're just trying to figure stuff out. And the Holy Spirit is working inside us to bring these things and fight these things out of us and to try to change us. And he's using each other to do this. That's why you can't bail. He's working on you. We'll have people in the church who are like, that guy drives me crazy. God's showing you something. God is screaming at me right now about patience. Screaming at me, Jeff, you need to grow in patience. You're struggling here and you know it. And so what happens is, is you get people in the church and that guy offended me. That guy wronged me and they're driving me crazy. And so your reaction sometimes is like, fine, we got churches all over the place. I'll just bail on this one and I'll go somewhere else. And you're not giving God the opportunity to actually maybe use that person's situation while he's working in them too to actually do some stuff in you. And maybe, just maybe you're not the problem in that case. Maybe. Maybe sometimes we get so frustrated with the person on the other end for being immature, but God actually put us in their life as a vessel of maturity to help them grow. But we get frustrated because we want done products. Like we want, I wish that I could adopt a six-year-old boy that is perfect. Wouldn't that be amazing? Mows the lawn already, washes the car, doesn't chase the dog, all those kinds of things. Doesn't constantly, like, I walk around the house now with my head on a swivel because at any moment something could fly through the air and plunk me right in the head. I'm like, I'm like in war zones now walking through my house in a way that I've never had to do before because I had girls. That's just not how it works. That's not realistic. So why do we do that with church? Why do we expect, oh, they got saved, boom, they're done. And what we want is we want everyone to give us time and grace to grow as the Lord leads us and to fight through our own things. But it's really hard to give that to other people. It's really hard. So we could just not be church. We could put on a really good show. We could invest everything in show and production. Instead of doing anything with mission or discipleship or any of that, we could put all our money and buy a fancy building. We could really just do a show. And at the end of the morning, we could say, God bless, good luck, and not promote community, not promote gatherings, not promote going out for sure and bringing new, new people in so that they can get saved. And we could keep it really nice and clean. At least it would look that way. Or we could, no, we are a, we're, we're not an organization, we're a family who's been adopted in and we're messy. And, and here's the idea, guys. Christ is the one who's being elevated as the head. So listen, don't put your faith in a church. You hear that? Don't put your faith in a church. Nowhere in the New Testament are you supposed to put your faith in a church. The church is the gathering of the people of faith who have put their faith in 
Christ. If you're putting your faith in any church, especially this one, you're in trouble. Like, I'm a mess most days, and don't even get me started about our elders. (laughs) You don't even want to know. You don't even want to know. But our faith goes in Christ, because Christ's what? He's first. Christ's what? He's king. He's savior. He's there. He's head. And he's the one that's working out the changes in us. And the Holy Spirit's working in us. And he's changing us. Last week, remember? From glory to glory, little by little, he's changing us. But don't expect perfection in the church. That's not how it works. Christ is head. That's who we put our faith in. Okay? Then how do we know we can trust him? I mean, at least the church is something tangible. Maybe we can measure the church's performance at times. And we do, right? I mean, we treat it more like a service industry thing. I'll go there as long as they're meeting my needs. But when I feel that they're failing me, I'll bail on that one and go to another one. Like we change restaurants. But okay, I like that, Jeff. My faith's not in the church. I don't like any of these churches anyway. Let's put my faith in Jesus. How do I know, though, that I can trust him? Look what the text says in verse 18. He's the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. So, church leaders of Jesus's day had issue with Jesus because he made claims nobody else was claiming. And he pushed against things that nobody had pushed on. And he pushed particularly against some of the religious practices and the religious leaders of the day. So for example, in Matthew chapter 12, there's these religious leaders and he's teaching about honoring the Sabbath and all these things that they had ruled this territory. And now he's coming in with different stuff that's messing up their whole game plan. And he's teaching with authority. The Bible says that people would hear him and they said he has authority that we've never heard before. And so the religious leaders, they're offended. Who is he to say? Who is he to point his finger? Uh, What are you talking about? And so they're worked up. And so they come to Jesus, Matthew 12, 38. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. This happened again in John chapter 2 when Jesus came into the temple and the money changers were there. He flipped over all the tables. And they were like, who do you think you are? Show us a sign. You say you've got this authority. You're the Son of God. Prove it. He said, tear down this temple, speaking of his body, and in three days I will raise it up again. So how do we know that we can trust Jesus, this preeminent one? Well, first of all, he's given us a sign to prove that he is the authority, the preeminent one, the one who's in control, the Lord. The sign that he gave the religious leaders of that day, and that translates all the way to us as well, is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The fact that Jesus rose again. He said, this is how you'll know that I have the power that I say that I have, and I have the authority that I say that I have. And you go, okay, that's great, power and authority. But we're talking about my life here, Jeff. Like, how do I, you're talking about chasing things that can't hold me together. I'm supposed to put my hope in Jesus to hold my life together. How do I even know that he will? How do I even know that he can? Well, look at some other texts. Romans chapter eight says this. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Now there's an issue in that. Jesus or the spirit can give life to our mortal bodies, which we so desperately crave, but it's tied to something. 
It's tied to a proof. It's tied to, here's how that power comes about. Here's what this is tied to. And what is it? It's the one that he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. So let me ask you this. If this statement's out there, he who raised Christ from the dead is able to give you this life in your mortal bodies. But if Christ didn't really raise, what's that statement worth? Universal sign for zero? Nothing. Nothing. That's a, that's a, it's a dumb statement if Christ didn't raise from the dead that we should pay no attention to whatsoever. Look at this next one, Romans 6. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. How many of you, you don't have to raise your hand because maybe the reason you want it is right next to you, but how many of you would love some newness in life? How many of us are just tired of some of the difficulty of the life, this fallen world that we live in anyway? Well, Jesus says he's making all things new and that he can bring newness of life, but it's tied to something. What's the proof? How do we know? Romans 6 says, just as Christ was raised from the dead. So let me ask you, what's that promise worth if Christ didn't raise from the dead? Why would anyone make a bumper sticker with a verse like that? if Christ didn't really raise from the dead. Look at John 11, Jesus' own words. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's a good verse. That's a funeral verse. It tends to come up in funerals. It was stated at a funeral. This is in John 11, the death of Lazarus before he raises Lazarus from the dead. But what if that didn't really happen? What if Jesus, who says, I am the resurrection and the life, actually didn't resurrect and isn't alive? What's that statement worth then? It's not even worth a fairy tale. It's stupid if Jesus didn't raise from the dead. It's meaningless. It's whatever, right? Last one. Look what Paul himself said to this effect. 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. And your faith is in vain. You know what that means? It's nothing. It's empty. It's worthless. It's silly. It's a waste of our time if Christ didn't raise from the dead. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. What does he mean by that? Like, if Christ didn't really raise from the dead, not only are we still in our sin, not only do we have no hope, not only are the people that we've known and loved before in Christ who died now dead and gone forever, never to come back, but we're to be pitied more than anybody because we wasted our whole life living for something to come that's never coming. And we wasted our entire life dedicating ourselves to a king who said he can save us, and it was a joke. If Christ didn't raise from the dead, then all of this is nothing. It's worthless and it's pointless. But let's just talk about it. Because did he? That's then what it comes down to, right? Did he? And a lot of people, amen, sermon over. But yes. So let's just talk for the skeptics that are here, because a lot of people, this is where it breaks down for a lot of people in Christianity. I love the teachings of Jesus. I love the emphasis. I love all of these things. He rose from the dead. I'm out. I'm out. Well, let, let's just talk history just for a moment. 
something happened. Something happened. Because for 2,000 plus years, every Easter, people get together in mass from all over the world to celebrate something. Whether they're fooled or not, something took place that has grown and grown and grown to the degree that Easter, people that don't have anything to do with Jesus or church all year long go, well, I got to go to church, it's Easter. Why? Because something happened. And so what happens is, is every Easter, that, that time comes where we start to celebrate this thing that happened, but also those who are skeptics, those who are not believers in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they come up in mass too, and they begin to start explaining away, no, nothing happened. Or really, where it is right now in the world around us, something happened, but let me explain what happened in a way that does anything but actually say there was a resurrection or that Jesus is Lord. So you get some of the most insane theories, many of which are more complicated and take more of a step of faith than just believing that Jesus rose again. Like the swoon theory. You guys know that one? It's been around for a little while. It's still here because it's kind of the best that's going right now still. The swoon theory says that Jesus was beaten, crucified, taken down, but that he didn't actually die. He sort of passed out. And they put him in the tomb and he was there for three days and then he arose. Now, I want you to just, just think about this for a minute. I mean, he, he was beaten to a pulp. Skin ripped off his back so he looked like hamburger meat. I mean, he was whipped and beaten and abused. They put a cross on his back until he couldn't even walk anymore. And then they still made him go up the hill. Then they nailed him to the cross in such a position that he couldn't even breathe without having to push himself up to the best of his ability. Do that after going through all those things. And not to mention all the suffering that's going on there, all of those things, but at the end, they take a spear, they insert it underneath his rib cage, up into his chest cavity, puncturing his lungs, his heart, all of that, causing blood and water to come gushing out. They take him off the cross, rip his arms off of the stuff that's there. They wrap him up in clothes, put him inside a tomb. They take a giant stone, roll it in front of the tomb, and then they put guards outside just in case because they had heard some rumors. And the swoon theory says, Jesus woke up, unwrapped himself, then fixed the wrappings so that they looked undisturbed again. So he made his bed. Then he got up, he moved the stone away, moved this giant stone away. There's guards all around. He walks by, travels by foot on a dirty road, seven miles to the city of Emmaus. I've stubbed my toe in the middle of the night and couldn't walk for a week. You know what I mean? Like I, I used to run and then I got hurt and now I'm running again and I'm finding that 44 is very different than 43. You know what I mean? And so I'll wake up in the morning and I'm like, yeah, let's go do this. Oh, 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 that hurts. I didn't know anything was there. Like there's like pains that come in. I'm, I'm like walking around with gimps at 44. Jesus went through that, walked seven miles to Emmaus. Come on, come on. Others would say, no, the whole thing was just kind of an illusion. That the apostles were so convinced that he was king that then when he died, between their fear, between their disappointment, between all of those things, that they ended up sort of convincing themselves into believing this sort of delusion that never really happened, that he never rose from the dead. Really? Because they died for that delusion. All of them. Violent deaths for that delusion. I tell you, for, for all that, that prosperity theology pushes out there today, that terrible, terrible lie 
that God exists just to make your life better and that if you're really following Jesus, you'll just prosper. Man, as great as that sounds, it didn't work out so well for the original followers of Jesus, did it? For the ones that Jesus seemed to know the best and love the most, their best life now, no thank you. Peter, crucified upside down on a cross? I mean, John's the one who wasn't killed. No, he was just boiled in oil and exiled on an island. Jesus' brother. I mean, think about your own brother if you have one or your own sibling in this. Jesus' own brother, thrown from the temple mount, breaks both of his legs. He's ordered to recant, still refuses, so they take a stick and they cave his face in. These people went through incredible, violent deaths for a delusion? Something happened. Something happened. The only possible explanation for what has happened is the fact that the tomb is empty, that Christ rose again, that he did walk out of that tomb, that he did ascend into heaven. We have the truth of scripture. We have 2,000 years of history, including personal experiences and walks with God that give testimony to the fact that Jesus Christ has risen again. Everything is banked on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. You go, yes, so I can believe, but what does that matter to me? Because Jesus Christ rose again, you can trust him to hold your world together. You go, oh, so that means that Jesus is going to work out all my problems and I'm going to end up in prosperity? Not necessarily, but you're not going to lose. No Christian has ever lost a battle to cancer. You know that? Ever. Well, but they died. They're healthy now. To live is Christ. To die is gain. That's what Paul writes. So Christ, to live is Christ. It means Christ is preeminent. He's center. And everything needs to revolve around him because he's the only one that can hold all things together. And then to die is gain. To die is to gain him, to be with him, to not have to worry about being 44 and achy anymore because I have a new body and a new resurrection without the the sin and the junk that I have to deal with in my life now. That's what that means. And so this morning, I just want to challenge those of you because the text does finish in verse 18 that he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be in preeminent. So church, Christ is first. And so I want to give us opportunity right now as Sam and the guys come back up here to do a little bit of self-reflection because it's so, so easy for us to get sort of off kilter, if you will, to find other things and make them first, to find other things to cause our world to revolve around. Whether it's money, family, job, self, that's the big one. I'll take care of everything. I'll hold everything together. I will keep it together. I will be my own savior or I'll be someone else's savior. And that's how I'll feel fulfillment in myself by taking care of everybody else and fixing all their problems. But you know, if you do any of those things long enough, you chase any of those rabbit trails long enough, your world starts to spin out and you will not feel like things are all being held together. You're going to feel like things are unraveling. Christ, this morning, through his providence, as we, the beat up, banged up body of Christ with issues and all, have come to this place, and this morning, in this text, God is reminding us that he's first, and he holds all things together. So for some of you, this time needs to be remembering that whatever it is that you're going through right now, God is the one that you need to turn to, because Jesus holds all things together. And the truth that, for those that are in Christ, he will never fail you. He will never leave you or forsake you. And for others, it's self-reflection to go, 
man, I, I just, I've put too many things in way. Jesus isn't first. He's not even my top 10. And so what I want you to do is just take this time to do some honest self-reflection. As the psalmist said, Lord, see if there be any wicked way in me. Allow God to work in your heart and speak to you. Some of those things are probably on your mind already. And to be able to go before the Lord and say, I repent. I've put these things in front of you. I've gotten things off kilter and I'm struggling and I, I'm sorry, but Jesus, will you be first? And to ask by the grace of God that the spirit of God would help you, so to speak, realign these things in your life. That we might make him, or I, sh- I started to say make him first. No, no, that we might realize again he's first and he holds all things together, including us. Amen? Will you bow your heads with me? God, will you speak to our hearts even now, minister to our souls? Give us, Lord, the ability to humbly reflect on who we are and who you are. Lovingly convict and graciously heal during this time. I want you to sit with your head bowed, your eyes closed. You don't have to sing, but I want you to do some work with God and pray. And then as you feel led, I want you to stand and sing. Part of worship is declaring that he's first. And part of worship too is it's invoking the emotions. Remember, that's what songs do. So it's one thing for me to tell you this stuff and now you know it in your head, but invoke your spirit and your soul. Sing. Allow those emotions to go. God wants your heart. So do some work with God and then stand and sing to our Savior and our King. Jesus' name.